Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. If you haven't met me, my name is James, and I am one of the, the pastors here at Reach Life Church. I would love to meet you at the end of the service. And uh, this morning, we are continuing in our teaching series that we started several months ago that, we're in, that, that we've entitled The Big Picture. And our goal, as I say each time, is that we are trying to, to preach overview passages of all 66 books of the Bible. Because our goal as a church is we want to be what we call biblically rooted. We want to understand the Word of God. We want to be grounded in in the Word of God, and we want to have a basic understanding of how each book contributes to the overall storyline of the Bible, which ultimately points us to the person and to the work of Jesus Christ. The entire Bible is meant to point us to Jesus. And if you have your Bibles this morning, we are going to be in the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, originally, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. But at some point in history, they were split into two books, probably so that they could be fit, uh, they would fit on scrolls. And this morning, as we're moving through this book, these two books, there are two things that I want to accomplish. And if you have your, your weekly, I'm going to go ahead and give you a, a point here. Number one, I want to point out three enemies, three enemies that sought to hinder God's work in these passages, uh, enemies that, that we must face today. So I think today is going to be a very applicable, applicable message. Secondly, I want to state one of the major themes that is found in Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is a statement that might seem obvious to all of us, and it is this, that God keeps his word. God keeps his word. We know that up here, don't we? But a lot of times we forget that here. And this is, I want to begin with this foundational truth because this morning, all of us in this room are probably in different places in life. There are some of us in this room that are on the top of of the mountain. They're living on the mountaintop right now. This is you if you are loving life right now. If you are excited about your future, this is you. And if you are so grateful to be alive. Now that's one group. There's a second group of us in this room who are on the other end of the spectrum. And you're clawing your way through the miry clay in the valley of the shadow of death. To you right now, life seems dark. To you right now, you're facing discouragement. And you might even be visionless right now. And really... Uh, This morning, you are the one who especially needs to be reminded that God keeps his word. Now, we all need to be reminded of that, because if you're on the mountaintop, let me give you some news. You're going to be in the valley eventually, right? Amen? I I was talking to my brother-in-law, who I've known for about 30 years, and when we were younger, he, he, well, after we got older, after he had got married and had six kids, he said, you know what, James? People used to always preach about how 
you know, you need to look at God, and you need to remember that he keeps his word because of all these problems in life. And he's like, I, I didn't even know what they were talking about back then. He goes, but those, those messages came back to me as I got into life, and I began to go down into the valley. So you might not think you need this message this morning, but I guarantee you, if you live long enough, you're going to have to remember what you've heard this morning. So I want to encourage you that all of us, this message that's going to be preached this morning should be ap- applicable to all of us. And um, if you didn't know, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And of these 1,189 chapters, only four of them are about life on the mountaintop, about life before sin. These chapters are the first two chapters in Genesis, and then the last two chapters in Revelation. And then everything in between, all the 1,185 chapters in between, guess what they're about? They are about God meeting us in the valley and giving us his word. He gives us promises that if we will take hold of them and if we will believe in them, that he will use them to give us victory over the enemies that we encounter when we are in the valley. And they will lead us to eternal life. And as you know, most of us know here, that in the third chapter of Genesis, in the Bible, the first two historical humans, Adam and Eve, didn't believe this truth, that God keeps his word. Now, we know that he said, you can eat of all the trees here in the garden except that one over there. Don't eat of that tree over there, because I'm telling you, my word is telling you, if you eat of that, you will die. And instead of believing God's word, instead of believing that God keeps his word, they believed Satan, who convinced them that God was withholding something good for them. Although we know the word of God says that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so what they did was they ate the forbidden fruit, and they discovered firsthand that God keeps his word. Because they died spiritually, and eventually they died physically. And God could have ended it all there. He could have wiped humanity out there in his justice. But in the same chapter, in verse 15, God speaks again. And he makes a promise. He says that one of Eve's descendants is going to be a savior. Through Eve will come a descendant who will be a savior, who will crush the head of the serpent, of Satan, and will eventually restore all things to the way they were meant to be. And this promised Messiah, the reason I'm taking so much time on this this morning is because I want to remind us why we're doing what we're doing. This promised Messiah, promised in Genesis 3.15, who we know to be Jesus, this is the thread that we are tracing through the scriptures. And we see how in Abraham, God promised that through your descendants, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and through your descendants, I'm going to bless all all the, the nations. And then last week, we saw through the Davidic covenant that God promises King David that one of his descendants, speaking of the descendant that he spoke of in Genesis 3.15, one of his descendants will be king and rule forever in an eternal kingdom. That's what we're all looking, we should be as believers looking forward to. And last week we saw in in 2 Chronicles that after generations of generations of God's people being unfaithful to his covenant, God is not. 
God keeps his word, and he disciplines his people by raising up King Nebuchadnezzar to ransack Jerusalem. Remember that? At the end of, of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he levels Solomon's temple and the walls that are surrounding Jerusalem, and he deports the Jews to Babylon. And we also talked about last week that through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, God tells his people when they get to Babylon, he says, settle in. You're not going anywhere for 70 years. Build homes, have families, look for the welfare of the city. And he says, at the end of 70 years, I will come back. I will bring you back to Jerusalem. And sure enough, 70 years later, God keeps his word. And that's where we're going to pick up in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now I'm going to stop right there. You know what year that is? That's 70 years after the first Jewish exiles were deported to Babylon. So God is going to keep his word. Look at this. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Here we are. God keeps his word. He's keeping his word here. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And so what we're going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah is what is called the second exodus. The second exodus. Now the first exodus happened basically 1,000 years prior to this when God delivered his people from the bondage, 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And in the second exodus, Jewish exiles begin returning back to Jerusalem. That's what's happening right now. I'm just trying to give you a little bit, little bit of context in history. And there were actually three waves of these exiles returning under three different men. The first man was Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. He, he leads the first uh, return. This is Ezra chapters 1 through 6. He rebuilds the altar, and then he rebuilds the temple. And then in Ezra 7 through 10, we meet Ezra, and he leads the second return. And during his time, he restores the law. He leads the nation in spiritual renewal. And then in, we go to the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 through 13. Nehemiah leads the third return. And what he does there, he rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. He renews the covenant. And then he repopulates Jerusalem. Now, getting back to our text in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, uh, a question that might arise in your, your mind, which it does in mine, is, is why would a Gentile pagan king by the name of Cyrus believe that the God of heaven would charge him, a Gentile, to rebuild a Jewish house, his house in Jerusalem? And the reason is, is because God keeps his word. Now, I say that because what's extremely Amazing, what's extremely interesting is that 150 years prior to the birth of King Cyrus or, or this moment, 
150 years before he made this proclamation, Isaiah, who was a prophet who lived amongst the people in Jerusalem, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he prophesied the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And get this, he mentions Cyrus by name in Isaiah 44, uh, verse 28. Let's, let's turn over. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to that or we can just flip to it. Verse 26 says that God confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. This is a, was written 150 years before this happened. Verse 28 says, who says of, here it is, Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, when Isaiah prophesied this, the foundations of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple were standing when he prophesied this. So he's not only prophesying that Cyrus is going to come and, and rebuild the temple, but he's also prophesying that Jerusalem is going to be torn down. It has to be torn down in order to be rebuilt. And the Jewish historian Josephus, you may have heard of him before, he was a historian who lived around the time of Jesus. He writes that someone, and we don't know who it, who it was, but someone made Cyrus aware of this prophecy in Isaiah. Some of us, uh, some of us think it could be Daniel. Uh, Daniel actually lived during the time of Cyrus. But anyway, Josephus says that when Cyrus read the prophecy that I just read you in Isaiah, it, he says that it moved him to do what was written. Why is that? Because God moved his heart. God keeps his word. And what we see, what we see in Ezra is that Cyrus decrees, ends up decreeing three things. He says, any Jew here in Babylon that wants to go back and rebuild the walls, you are now free to go. Secondly, he tells the Babylonian neighbors of the Jews, those who were living around the Jews in Babylon, he says, give them money to help subsidize the work of the temple and, then, and, the, and rebuilding of the walls. And then he commands that all the articles that were taken by King Nebuchadnezzar from the temple be returned to Jerusalem. And you know, all throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, as God calls his people to participate in the work of rebuilding Jerusalem. We see, if you read throughout these books, you see that they encounter at least three different types of enemies. That's what I want to look at for the rest of our time here. Three enemies that seek to hinder God's work. And they are enemies that still exist today. As we are seeking to follow the Lord, as we are seeking to be obedient, as we are seeking to be a part of his work, what he is doing in our time in 2023, these are still enemies that we need to be aware of if we are going to be successful in following the Lord and fulfilling what he has for us as a church and as individuals. And the first enemy is this. It's the enemy of comfort and complacency. The enemy of comfort and complacency. And it's estimated that there was probably around a million Jews in Babylon at the time of this when this passage was, was written. And in chapter 2, if there's a list of uh, genealogies of all the Jews that went back to Jerusalem, those who took Cyrus up on the offer to return home to Jerusalem. And it totaled less than 
50,000 people. 49,897 to be exact. And that's about, sadly, that's about 5% of the Jews who could have returned. 5%. 95% stay in Babylon. 5% say, okay, we want to go back and take part in the work of the Lord to rebuild Jerusalem, to help carry the burden of this great work. And what seems to have happened is that, you know, remember God told the, the exiles, he, he said, you know, settle down, build houses, have gardens, have families. It seems like 95% of them got a little bit too comfortable and they were not interested in personally being a part of God's work. Um, they, I can just imagine that some of them prob probably were like, hey, we'll come after it's done. We'll show up after the work is done because we want to see what God does through you guys um, and, and worship then. But they were not willing to make the sacrifice and put in the hard work necessary to see God's work accomplished. And, you know, this isn't something that's unique to this passage, is it? This is something that goes through, when it comes to God's work, this is something that kind of goes throughout all generations, isn't it? It's that mindset that we can have in the church, isn't it? The, the mindset when it comes to serving the Lord together. Um, let's just take uh, Sunday morning as an example. This is just one area that we can serve the Lord together. But it's like on a Sunday morning. Um, have you ever said this or thought this? Because what I'm about to say, I've thought it. You know, I just want to come to church and worship the Lord and not have any responsibilities. I just want to sit down and just worship the Lord. Uh, I, I have, I mean, I know I'm a, I'm a pastor here, but there, in reality, there are times that I'm just like that. I'd love just to come here and just worship and not have any responsi responsibilities. What I'm saying when I think that or, or is, is, you know, I would like for other people just to serve me. And, you know, there are seasons there are seasons where you're not in a place to serve. Sometimes we have illnesses and sicknesses. Sometimes you've just had a, a newborn. Uh, maybe you're going through a difficult season in life. There's times I will tell people, hey, look, you don't need to be serving right now. You need to just sit down, let us serve you, let us get you in a good place. But sometimes those of us who are able to serve and can serve, we for some reason don't. And we need to be reminded of two things when we're in a place like that. Number one is that, like for this example, Sunday mornings are, uh, happen because people sacrificially volunteer and serve. Right now, this morning, people came early. They sacrificed their mornings, and they came to help set up so that the, so that the rest of us could come in and worship. And they, you know the thing I love about what's going on in our church? People are doing it with joy. I don't hear any grumbling in that. I hear them participating with joy and, and desiring to be a part of what God is doing. That's one thing we have to remember. This doesn't just happen by accident. And secondly, that there is great joy in sacrificing and serving together with one another. There is so much joy when we sacrifice together, especially when we remember that Jesus lived his life that way. He's our motivation. He's our example. He sacrificed his life. 
He laid it down. And that, that sacrifice, when we realize what Jesus did for us, it empowers us to want to sacrifice our lives for one another, to help carry the burden, to help give financially, to come early and help set up, or to be a greeter, a first-time guest. Or, you know, if you're back there, listen, if you are back there and reach kids, God bless you. I praise God for you. Because you have the great privilege of helping parents to disciple their children. Because what you're doing back there, you're teaching them the Word of God. You're getting the opportunity to, to plant seeds, the gospel in their hearts that we, we pray will grow uh, into faith in Jesus. Let me ask you this. How many of you, by the raising of your hand, can say, there was somebody when I was a child in my life that planted seeds in my life? And, and I believe today. Okay, most everybody in this room. Listen, when you serve and reach kids, you get to preach the gospel every single week. And if you are serving in the nursery, the, the, this one, or you change diapers, God super bless you. Super bless you. I want to just show you, uh, envision you, because that's probably the hardest place to serve in this church from what I've for me, it would be, actually. So, But let me just tell you, um, when you do that, you are giving a worn-out mama a much-needed break to be able to come here and sit down. You're sacrificially serving one another. This is just, just one example within the church, but it's a tangible exam example where we can all come together and help carry the load. And when we all work together, it makes the load light. Well, back to Ezra. In Ezra chapter 3, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, a small remnant of Jews returns, 50,000 or less than 50,000, returns to the ruins of Jerusalem, and they, they immediately rebuild the altar. And then two years later, they laid the foundations of the temple, and the people come together, and they worship the Lord. They have a, a big worship ceremony. And this is where we encounter enemy number two. The enemy of past blessings and unmet expectations. We need to be aware of the enemy of past blessings and unmet expectations. Let's look at verse 3. This is the worship service they were having. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But, verse 12, but many of the priests and, the, and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. This is, these are not tears of joy. These are tears of sorrow. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. Now what's going on here is the younger generation is like on the mountaintop. They've been in captivity their whole lives. They have never seen anything like this before, where they are a part of a, a, of a work of revitalizing Jerusalem. They're excited about the future, but the gray heads in the bunch, 
the older generation who had seen the splendor and the glory of Solomon's temple before it was destroyed, they are weeping in disappointment. They are disappointed. Number one, because the footprint of the temple was significantly smaller and it wasn't as impressive as, as the first temples, as the one that Solomon had laid. Secondly, because the Ark of the Covenant was missing. It wasn't there. It, it went missing whenever uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. And over the centuries, many have debated. This is kind of a side note here, but many have debated what happened to the Ark. Was it, was it destroyed by Babylon? Uh, did the Jews... Some Jews come and take it and relocate it and hide it in a secure location. If you ever go to Israel, it seems like every place you go, they go like, behind that wall there is the Ark of the Covenant, and we can't get to it yet. But did that happen? Some people think it was taken up into heaven. And, and you know, these were questions that many of us had, unless you're old enough to remember back in 1981. There was a documentary where we learned that in 1936... Indiana Jones rescued the Ark of the Covenant from the hands of the... You remember that? It's, it's well documented. Now, it's still hidden. We don't know where it's at. It's somewhere uh, in an undisclosed U.S.-guarded warehouse. But we do know... Okay, anyway. The Ark of the Covenant was not there. And number three, this is why the older generation was disappointed. It's because there was no holy fire from heaven like the first, when, when Solomon's temple was first dedicated. There was no cloud of Shekinah glory, and there was no spirit of prophecy. And what it seems that the older generation was dealing with is the common enemy of past blessings. You know, before they left Babylon to return to Jerusalem, they, they probably had these glorious visions in their head of what it was going to look like when they got back to rebuild Jerusalem. They're thinking, we get to relive the glory days. And then they get there, and it's not anything that they remembered. They're like, this, this is it? And see, church, we need to be on guard when it comes to, to God's blessings. We've got to be on guard because past blessings that God gives us in the past can be today's curses that keep us from moving forward. Now, God gives us blessings to encourage us to move forward, but not to stay with the blessings, but to, to, to move forward. And it's easy. It's easy for us all when we're living life to think, you know, and it was so much better back then. It was so much better back then. And when I think that, you know what I tell myself? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. You've just forgotten about the trials in the past and that God keeps his word and he was faithful to get you through. So we've got to beware of past blessings, thinking, oh, if only I was back there. You're not going back there. Only God can be in the past and in the present. We're, I'm in, in, in the future. We're in the present. But then there's the unmet expectations. You, you're in the present, but you're disappointed about the present. You look at your life, it seems, you know, 
seemingly unimpressive. It's not what you thought it was going to be when you were younger. Uh, this isn't what you envisioned. And you say things like, you know, I thought by now, you fill in the blank. I thought that by now, you know, I would have this amazing career. Or I thought by now, I would be accepted at this school or I would be in this or that relationship. And, and you're tempted to think. Here's what you're tempted to think in those situations. If I can just get to the next season, if I can fast forward this thing and get out of this season and get to the next season, then my expectations, they will be met then. And again, that's not the right mindset. That is an enemy because it can cause us to miss what God is doing right now in this season of your life. We, we tend to miss, miss seasons when we think that it will be our expectations will be fulfilled sometime in the future, this side of eternity. And so the second temple, it was not, outwardly it was not impressive as the first. And, and so Zerubbabel, he may have been discouraged. And the reason I say this is because God sends a prophet by the name of Zechariah. And in Zechariah's book, chapter uh, 4, verse 10, Zechariah says this to Zerubbabel. He says, do not despise the day of small things. He's talking about the temple. Do not despise the day of small things because one day you will rejoice. We need to remember, church, that God's work often has humble beginnings, doesn't it? Remember in Mark 4, verse 31, Jesus says this. He's, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. This is the smallest seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And yes, the foundation is smaller, but one day, someone greater than Solomon, the promised Messiah Jesus, he would walk within those foundations of that temple. And so by, by the grace of God, this teaches us that we need to seek to be fully present. We need to seek to be fully faithful in the small things and let God determine the growth and the outcome. Well, in the year 457 B.C., nearly 80 years after Ezra had led the, uh, I'm sorry, nearly 80 years later, Nehemiah, I'm sorry, Ezra led the second wave of exiles returning to Jerusalem. This is the second wave, and, and he was responsible for restoring the law and leading Israel into a spiritual renewal because many of the, still, uh, many of the Jews were still practicing some of the pagan practices that they had learned while in Babylon. And then as we go into the book of Nehemiah, we're introduced to Nehemiah, who while still in Persia and serving as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, he receives word from one of his relatives. He receives word that those who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall were under distress. And that the walls of Jerusalem were still not built and that its gates were burned with fire. 
And when he gets this news, it burdens him so much, so deeply, that it leads him to fast and to pray. And what God does is he moves upon King Artaxerxes, who gives Nehemiah permission to return to Israel to oversee the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem, which brings us to our final enemy that we need to be aware of, and that is the enemy of discouragement. And all throughout, if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, all throughout the books, you will encounter the enemy of discouragement. It arises through various agents. And what the goal of the enemy of discouragement is, it seeks to discourage God's people. It seeks to cause you to give up and to stop moving forward. Stop trusting God. And when Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem to begin the work on the walls, he is immediately met with opposition. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19, it says, But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, they're trying to discourage Nehemiah and the group from, from moving forward. And evidently, Nehemiah remembers the word of Jeremiah, who told them that God had a plan for them, that he would cause them to prosper. Because in verse 20, 20 he says this, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. He doesn't say, we'll show you. He says, he believes the word of God. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. Their faith in God calls them to live a life of obedience. Now, after they get the wall built about halfway through, in Nehemiah 4, it says that, now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Verse 3 says, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone, their stone wall. That is so third grade, isn't it? I mean, that, that is so childish. And here's how one way that we can know that that's not a word from God is because it was, it was cruel. Uh, it was demeaning. That isn't how God talks to us. And again, I love what Nehemiah, how he responds to this in verse 9. He says, and we prayed. The first thing Nehemiah did, he didn't respond to them. It says, and he prayed and God set, and, to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Again, they went to God, which caused them to be obedient and to be about the work of God. 
And I just want to close this morning by saying this, that anytime Reach Life Church, listen, anytime believers, disciples of Jesus, anytime you set your mind that you're going to serve and you're going to follow Jesus, when, whenever you decide that you're going to take the time to turn your life to him and you are going to get to know him and you are going to make him known, mark my words, mark the word of God, discouragement will arise. Enemies will arise. Satan, who, uh, which means adversary, his purpose is to discourage you. He, is, he wants to discourage you wherever you are in life this morning. He wants to discourage you in your singleness. He wants to discourage you in your marriage. He wants to discourage you in your parenting. Uh, he wants to discourage you in your walk with Christ. His goal is to make you surrender and just give up. To make you lie dormant. And when what the enemy loves to do is to plant seeds of unbelief and discouragement in our heads. They, they come like this. Who do you think you are? I mean, really. Who do you think you are? Trying to reach people for Jesus. Trying to reach a community. You know, listen, nobody really today, maybe back 50 years ago, people wanted to hear about Jesus, but people don't want to hear about Jesus today. Who, who do you think you are? I mean, you're too young. You, you don't know enough yet. You're too inexperienced. You're insignificant. What you're doing will not make a difference. Or how about this one? You're too old. You're too old. You're pat, you know, you've wasted your life. You're past the season where God could use you. What, I'm lear what I've learned is I'm never the right age. I'm never the right age. I'm either, I was either too young, and now I'm getting too old. You're never the right age if you listen to that voice. And here's the one that can really be the dagger. The one that says you're too sinful. Some of us have something in our past that haunts us, something we've done, uh, something that's affected. Maybe it's affected your life today, to this day. Maybe your life is, is in shambles because of things you've done in the past. Maybe it was your fault that you're where you're at today. Poor choices you made. And the lie that the, the enemy uses on you right now is that God can't and he won't use you moving forward. And it, it may be true, like I said, that you're where you are because of your sin. Sometimes we're, we have enemies come against us because uh, we're doing the right thing. Sometimes it's because we did the wrong thing, because of sinful choices we made. And it may be true that God is disciplining you. But listen to me. What I love about the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is these are such encouraging pictures of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the gospel. Because Jerusalem, remember, Jerusalem lay in waste. The temple had been destroyed. The walls had been torn down. Why? Because of choices Israel made. It was their fault that they were in the place they were in. And yes, God did discipline them. But here's the good news of the gospel. God hasn't forgotten us. 
God didn't forget his people, and he hasn't forgotten us. I don't care what you've done. This passage teaches us that God is never finished with, with us, that he keeps his word. This is a picture of the gospel, because just as they, they turned from God, at one point, they turned back from their sin, and they returned to him, and over time, what does God do? He rebuilds the city. And in the same way, church, this is good news for us. Because if you will own your sin, turn from it and turn to Jesus. Listen, over time, God can rebuild your life. And not just that. You can be confident that you can be a part of his work now. You don't have to wait. Your life's not over in Christ. And so we don't have to live lives of discouragement. Why? Because God keeps his word. And what we're called to do is simply repent, believe, and obey. Amen.